Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Welcome to the Rhino Podcast, brought to you by Rhino Records. Interviews with your favorite artists and bands about the songs and albums you love. Here's your host, Rich Mahan. On this episode of the Rhino Podcast, acclaimed producer Tony Visconti joins us to discuss the 50th anniversary of T-Rex Electric Warrior. gentlemen welcome back to the rhino podcast i'm rich mahan here with john hughes john how are you today i'm doing great rich how are you i'm doing fine thanks excellent fall here all the karens are lining up pumpkin spice everything now (laughs) don't don't make them angry you wouldn't like them when they're angry (laughs) what are you up to these days well, you know, in between uh, asking to see the manager at Starbucks because my pumpkin spice wasn't mixed properly, I mm-hmm. am excited about the Doors L.A. Woman 50th Anniversary Deluxe Edition. Yeah. Three CDs, one LP, more than, get this, two hours of unreleased session outtakes. It has the original album, newly remastered by the Doors' longtime engineer and mixer, Bruce Botnick, two bonus discs of unreleased studio outtakes, and the stereo mix of the original album on 180-gram virgin vinyl. The original album's been expanded, and it allows you to experience the progression of each song as it developed in the studio. Of course, it's got Jim Morrison, John Densmore, Robbie Krieger, Ray Manzarek working in the studio with two additional musicians. The first was rhythm guitarist Mark Benno, who had worked with Leon Russell in the Asylum Choir. And the other was Jerry Sheff, who was a member of Elvis Presley's TCB band. Oh, yeah. L.A. Yeah. L.A. Woman 50th Anniversary Deluxe Edition is available December 3rd from Rhino and is up for pre-order right now. They released one track from this already. It's the demo a very early version of Riders on the Storm. And it's very cool to hear how John Densmore changes his drum beat as they're recording it and figures out what he's going to play. Really oh, cool listen. Always fascinating to hear stuff like that. Meanwhile, Eagles Live at the Forum 76 is going to make its vinyl debut on November 12th. This, of course, was recorded in the fall of 1976, right before the release of Hotel California. Live at the Forum 76 will be available as a two LP set on 180 gram vinyl. The tracks will be making their vinyl debut. Before this, they were only on the CD and digitally as part of 2017's 40th anniversary edition of Hotel California. The live music is taken up full three sides of the LPs, while the final one features an exclusive etching of the artwork. That's always very cool. This two LP set features 10 live performances, and it's available November 12th from Rhino.com and everywhere else. It's up for pre-order now. Go get it. 
Awesome. Yeah. And as we said before, this music was meant for vinyl. So this is going to sound fantastic. Yes. Nice and warm, like a fall night with a pumpkin spice latte. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Karen, we'll talk to you later. (laughs) See you next time. (laughs) All right. Bye, John. Our guest today is Tony Visconti, acclaimed producer who has helped create some of the most important records of the last half century. His work with David Bowie alone sets his legacy in stone, but he's also worked extensively with Mark Bolan and Tyrannosaurus Rex, later T-Rex, and together they crafted the masterpiece Electric Warrior. This album is celebrating its 50th anniversary this year, and we're pleased to have Tony here to walk us through its creation. Build a house on the ocean. I could have placed our love in the sky. But it really doesn't matter at all. Now it really doesn't matter at all. Life's a guy. Tony Visconti, welcome to the Rhino Podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be on the Rhino Podcast. Well, we're we're happy to have you, certainly. I mean, Rhino has so much of the music that you've produced that uh, it's great to finally get to talk to you. So let's just get a little bit of background on you first. You grew up in New York. You're a native New Yorker. Yes, I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and then I moved to the big borough of Manhattan at age 21. And I wasn't there for long because I went to England when I was 23 years old for, for 22 years. Some people think of you as a Brit because you've done so much work over there. What took you over there originally? Well, you know, technically I was trained there. I I knew nothing about uh, recording in the United States. I I was in recording sessions as a musician, but uh, I met a producer, Denny Cordell, his name was, in uh, my publisher's office where I had a a songwriting uh, contract. And uh, I went to a session with him in New York. I helped him out big time. I I wrote a quick uh, brass arrangement. He came totally unprepared. And he was so impressed with me that right after the session, he said, I need you back in London. Would you like to be my assistant? You know, and since I was I heard the Beatles at 16 years old, I said, how am I going to get to Great Britain? How am I going to get to London? I mean, it was (laughs) beyond my economical means. And Denny just invited me to work with him side by side. So that's how I got over there. Because you were already quite an accomplished musician yourself. You had been doing uh, session work in New York as a teenager. Yeah, my, my first recording session was actually 11 years old. And, wow. uh, and then at 13, I really got serious and I had a few more sessions. But by the time I was, um, you know, just hit my early 20s, between kind of 18 and 20, I was doing a lot of session work and I observed a lot and I learned a lot about that side of it. Wasn't too quite sure what a producer was, but right. uh, in those days we heard this booming voice come out out of the speakers. We weren't allowed in the control room. And you'd hear these speakers saying, uh, hey, bass player, your E string is flat. And it was like God speaking to you, you know? Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, that, that's, that, I really didn't know what a record producer was until I observed Denny in action over when I was over in London. And I didn't realize it was such a kind of a psychological job. Kind of. I mean, you weren't, you didn't need a degree in psychology, but you had to feel people out and learn 
how to speak to them properly without bruising their egos. You know, when a, a musician is in the studio or a singer or, or anybody, they're a little nervous, you know, and, and they're, they're feeling vulnerable. And you can't come down like uh, on top of them like a ton of bricks. And Denny had this beautiful, soothing way of speaking. He, he was English, so I, I likened him unto King Arthur. You know, he could charm the yeah. birds off the trees with that lovely accent, the lovely smooth voice. And he'd get anybody to do anything that that way. And that's I learned from him. I took, you know, he wrote the book as far as I'm concerned. And I studied with him for a year tr and trained under him and wrote all his string arrangements. He couldn't write arrangements. I could. And we had a nice symbiotic relationship for about a year. Wow. So you... See, that's such an important part of producing that I don't think a lot of people talk about. People think about, you know, the musical arrangement and uh, engineering. And let's just take a side question here. For you, how much producing is actually having your hands on the board versus your your mental game together and helping them get the arrangement and the performance together? Well, there are several types of record producers, and it depends what you came up from. I came up from musician. And I was trained as a musician and an arranger, which I think is the best way to come up personally. A lot of uh, engineers came up as producers, and they know how to get sounds, and of course they know how to speak to musicians. But I doubt that many engineers, unless they were in a punk band when they were young, you know, can yeah. really can really communicate to all kinds of musicians. So I have to, uh, in my job, I have to communicate to rock musicians, R&B musicians, and classical musicians, because I do a lot of, till this day, I do a lot of string arrangements and orchestral arrangements. So you have to know the vocabulary, and you have to have the background. When you make a suggestion, you have to know what you're talking about, because... Again, uh, artists are vulnerable, but they also smell a rat. Like if you don't, if you're, if you don't know what you're talking about, they'll lose yeah. respect for you. You got to back it up with some firm knowledge, and uh, you know, say, "Well, I've been there, and this is what you got to do, and you better do it." Something like that, you know. Right. Yeah. Since you didn't start out in the control room, like you said, did you ever get to the point where you said, "You know, I really need to learn." how to work this board. I need to learn, you know, what EQ and compression is, or did you not take the time to do that and just stay more in the arrangement and musician headspace? I learned some engineering in New York because my best friend worked at Atlantic Records when they were in Columbus Circle. The, the studio was there and everybody recorded their R&B records at Atlantic Records in New York. And there was Amit Erdogan working there and Tom Dowd was the chief engineer and all that. Oh, wow. And, and my friend Bruce Turgeson worked right under Tom Dowd, so he used to sneak me into sessions. I shouldn't have been there, you know, but I'd be in the corner and all that, and I'd watch and observe. And uh, I was on a session with Ahmed Erdogan, and he was recording strings and brass. And he turned to Bruce and he said, I, something's wrong with this. It was, uh, you make me feel like a natural woman. That, okay. that song. And he, this, Aretha wasn't there, but it was, it was uh, the brass overdubs and all that. I whispered to my friend Bruce, the French horns are out of tune. And uh, he, in a loud voice, he said, my friend Tony here says the French horns are out of tune. <laughs> so I, th I thought I was going to be booted out, you know, but then yeah. uh, Ahmed Erdogan turns to me and he, he looks at me and he, he, he says, I think he's right, you know. So he, <laughs> he presses the button and he says, will you French horn players tune up? 
I have to add that I was already in a high school orchestra for four years by then, and I did know what I was talking about. Yeah, right. So I applied. You know, you get knowledge when you least expect it, and you don't know when you'll need to, like, uh, give out that knowledge again. This is one of those such moments. So Bruce showed me the basics of engineering back in New York, and uh, I learned the rest under Glyn Johns and a, and a few other people uh, wow. that, that Denny Cordell used as, as his primary engineers. Denny himself did nothing. He did no engineering, no arranging. However, I got him in mixing sessions. I got him to push faders and do his own mix, and he was thrilled because he was too shy to ask the real you know, heavy hitting, uh, high engineers to do, to teach mm-hmm. him to do that. Everybody was carpentalized. And, uh, we, we, uh, would you, you would you say do... more so in the UK than the U S yeah, even then it was, uh, you couldn't cross the boundaries. You couldn't cross right. the boundaries. Yeah. Uh, and you know, it, it, the producers were the, were the boss. That was the good thing. They would have to listen to you. But if you were an engineer, you, if you touched a fader, you'd, you'd, if they had a, a, a knife, they'd cut your finger off. <laughs> it was like, wow, you really got shot down if you wanted to. So I started mixing for Denny. We, we figured out, uh, we used a room at Trident Studios, and I mixed the first Joe Cocker album with him. He just loved the freedom and the ability to communicate better. And, you know, he's mixing with a friend instead of a, a pro. Some of those engineers had a, a bad attitude as well. They they weren't friendly. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's not really conducive to a a, a good work environment. No. Certainly. Besides Joe Cocker, what were some of the other groups you worked with when you first got to the UK? Well, Denny uh, Denny Lane was fresh off out of the Moody Blues. The Moody Blues kind of reformed, and the the he was the lead singer on the song "Go Now." And he was a big friend of Denny Cordell's. So I worked on a lot of sessions with Denny Lane. I did uh, his first solo album, and I did a lot of the arrangements, string arrangements and all that. And Denny Lane and I became really good friends. Uh, so that was one, one thing, I, one artist I worked with. Then towards the end of my first year, Denny Cordell said, it's time you got an act of your own. I mean, you've worked with Joe Cockerell, but I know, I know you can do it. So go out and find a group, find something, you know, you have to do it on your own. Yeah. So that the day he told me that I went out that evening and I listened to John Peel on the radio and he was going on and on about this group called Tyrannosaurus Rex. And they happened to be playing just around the corner from our offices. So after work, I, I walked around the corner. I went up to that place. They were on early, something like 7 or 7.30, something like that. And I walked down the stairwell, and I heard the first strains of Mark Boland's voice. And Steve Peregrine took playing the bongo drums. This was when Mark Boland was in Tyrannosaurus Rex, and it wasn't a rock group yet. Yeah. And I, I spoke to them at the end of their set. And uh, gave them my card, and I said, please come and see us. We, Denny Cordell has a record label, and uh, I love you guys. I would love to work with you. And Mark Bolin, uh, he, he had chutzpah right back then. He said, oh, you're the eighth record producer who came to see us this week, <laughs> and, uh, which was a total lie. Yeah. Uh, he said, John Lennon was here the other night, and he, he's got a new label called Grapefruit, and he, he wants to sign us. I said, 
Oh, well. I said, well, in case John Lennon doesn't sign you, could you come to my office tomorrow morning? <laughs> I kind of smelled. <laughs> I thought, something's going on here, you know. Yeah, right. And uh, he did. He showed up promptly at 10 a.m. in the morning. Luckily, we, we were there. And yeah. um, I told Denny, Denny Cordell, I said, that group I just told you about, they're standing out on the street by a payphone, and they want to know if they could come up and audition for you. So that was it. They, they came upstairs. They sat down on the floor like they did in the nightclub. They right. sat down on the floor and went through their set. And Denny really liked them. He wasn't crazy to, about them. But um, as soon as they left, he said, uh, I'm not really into them. But if you are, we'll take them on as our token underground group. Because underground was a big thing in 1967, you know, there was right, overground, sure. I guess pop music was overground, but underground was the <laughs> new thing. And people were making hits as underground groups. So that was, that's how they got signed. And it's my first signing, my very first night on the town to look for a group. And we got them signed within a week. That's amazing. This is like it's faded. You know what I mean? The very first night. That's really, that's quite remarkable. <laughs> and so they, they hadn't done any recordings yet. How had John Peel heard of them? Just clubbing? Singing them live? He, oh, he was wonderful. He had a Saturday or a Sunday show, I forget what it was, where he would break new talent and he would go out in clubs like I, I did and he'd find them. He'd discover people like that. And he, through the same way, he went to this club. It was called Middle Earth, uh, named uh, after, you know, Tolkien's uh, Lord of the Rings, one of his, you know, places sure. in Lord of the Rings. And, uh, that's how he got them on the radio. And I did hear them on the radio as well and This before I saw them. And that was it. John was just their champion. And they, had a, they were around for about a year before I met them. And they did make a couple of records with a, a producer called Simon Napier Bell. He was, he was a, a earlier producer than I was. He started, say, around 1965. But he, he did uh, a couple of songs, and they went absolutely nowhere. And In fact, when I made the first Tyrannosaurus Rex album, we re-recorded the songs that Simon did. But he mm. gave him a break, and Mark, no, nobody wanted to touch Mark because he was too weird. He, he huh. sang in that high tremolo voice, uh, and he, he, his voice was very light. He wasn't a screamer. He wasn't a rock and roller. And he said he learned that vibrato in his voice, he used to play Bessie Smith records at the wrong speed. Uh, like he would play them, at, they would be 45 RPM and he'd play them at 78 RPM on his parents' <laughs> grammar. So he'd get that, ah, in his voice like that. And he started singing yeah. along with her at that pitch. And that's how he did, he wasn't, you know, naturally born with that very fast vibrato, but uh, that's how yeah. he picked it up and he made something of it. Wow, how about that? Uh, so you did so many records, almost all of their records, but by the fourth album, you guys were, they changed the name of the band from Tyrannosaurus Rex to T-Rex. How did that come around? Oh, a lot of people want to be the father of that story, but uh, I'm going to say that I'm the father of that story. <laughs> okay. <laughs> because in my, in my office that I shared with Danny Cordell, I kept writing uh, when I was in the studio with them. Uh, it was too long to write out Tyrannosaurus Rex, even once, you know. So I would write T-Rex, and then I would make a line through two weeks, you know, saying that would tell me I'd be in the studio for two weeks with T-Rex. Yeah. And I did that for the first and, and second album. And uh, Mark said, hey, man, he came in and he saw that. He goes, it's Tyrannosaurus Rex. I said, I know, but you want to write it out every day of the week? You know, here's, here's my pen, you know. I was yeah. in really good, funny terms with him. And he kind of like 
grimaced a little bit and uh, said, okay, you know, he just dropped it. But I think, you know, since I was the first one to call him T-Rex on my calendar and he made a big point of uh, that I shouldn't, I think I might have planted the, the seed in his head. But there are managers and friends who also say that they gave him the idea to call the group T-Rex. But it was a great yeah. move because, honestly, you, read it, you needed that abbreviation. That, sure. That kind of brought more easier. attention to them when they would call themselves T-Rex. Yeah, it just kind of rolls off the tongue easier, certainly. Sure. Uh, so, strangely or coincidentally, when the name changed to T-Rex, the music started to change a little bit also. And, and Mark started incorporating more electric instruments into the band's music. And that self-titled fourth album started to have some electric guitar in it. it did Mark ever talk to you about that change? Oh, of course. I had a uh, an apartment in the Earl's Court area of London. It's kind of where all uh, immigrants go, and <laughs> I was one of them. You know, that, that was the place yeah. where you could find a, a, a cheap apartment. It, it was cheap by those days standards too, but it was really nice. We had a, a nice landlord who kept all the apartments very clean and, and well-painted and all that. And I had two young friends. One was Mark Bolin, and the other was David Bowie. They were both living with their moms at the time. And I had a, I had a stereo record player, which was brand new for 1967, 1968. That, the concept right. of having one in your home was hard. We knew it, stereo existed, but no one could play it. So they used to come. And I also had two electric guitars and an electric bass, which were just leaning up against the wall. A uh, little amplifier, and you could plug all three instruments in the amplifier. And I swear to you, I had many an evening of Mark and David loaning my guitars and playing them, jamming on, on old Chuck Berry songs. And wow. I'm playing the bass, and we used to like howl and sing and do backup vocals. We did that for a good year. And uh, when Mark went electric on the very first album where he went electric, he borrowed my Fender Stratocaster to play and loved it. He, he, he did have a, an electric guitar years earlier, but the group took it back from him. It was, he didn't own it. So mm -hmm. now he was making a bit of money. His first few albums, the Tyrannosaurus Rex albums, were selling. They were, they were hitting like a, a 40,000 mark, you know, through John Peel, plugging them every right. Sunday. They, they were selling records, so Mark had money to buy his own Strat. And he, he bought himself a white Strat after that. And uh, so that, that's when it went electric. And I'm telling you, it's, it wasn't a big, obvious thing. It was just a natural evolution. Uh, on his last album, I think, Beard of Stars, or it might have been Unicorn, he started playing electric. And it blended in with the acoustic guitar a lot. It's still, it was still acoustic bass, not drum kit. No drum kit on the third album. It was still bongos. Uh, for laughs, I don't know for laughs or for economy, there was a song called Cat Black, The Wizard's Hat, where there, there is a drum kit. And they went to a toy store and bought a little toy drum kit for a, like an eight-year-old. Yeah. And Steve Peregrine took play the drums on, on that cat. That's the first time a drum kit ever appeared on a T-Rex record. So it was the third album. And it was a toy drum kit. Toy drum kit. And you know something? If Detuning the skins and all that, it, it sounded almost like an Elton John record. It was The toms were really great, you know. It was really cool. cool sound. All right. How, how did you mic the toy drum kit, I have to ask? Uh, not great difficulty. It was too small to put the normal 10 microphones on the drums, <laughs> 10 or 14 or 15 mics. 
It was just yeah. uh, maybe three mics, you know, an overhead and two close-up mics to get the, get the tom sound and the snare sound. Yeah. Uh, it w- and I wasn't even serious at first, but then as soon as I heard the playing, then I got I maybe repositioned the mics a bit, started using some cool EQ and all that. But that that drum kit sounds amazing on that song. The name of the toy company was Chad Valley, in case you want to know a bit of minutia. <laughs> you have now, sir, just driven up the price of Chad Valley drum kits on eBay. <laughs> I don't know if they exist anymore, but it was a bit of a joke. When, when someone had a cheap guitar, a ukulele, something, go, oh, is that a Chad Valley? You know, it was kind of a put down. After that album came out... It, Straighten this out for me a little bit. So, Ride a White Swan comes out. It's a big hit. But it wasn't on the UK version of the T-Rex self-titled album. So, what happened there? I don't know. Blue Thumb got involved. I mean, an American label finally got involved. And they had their ideas of what you wanted to release in America. And that, you know, in those days, the Beatles put like 14, I think 16 songs on a on their uh, Parlophone label, but yeah. Americans stuck to that 12-song limit on LPs. It was a financial thing. They didn't want to give you 16 songs like the, the, like the British did. They wanted to give you 12 songs. So uh, so a, a lot of our, the, the early, the first album was a diff- different uh, set of songs in, in, in America. And it happened for, I, my memory's not clear, but that was the reason. America had that 12-song limit. Hmm. Whereas we we would put at least fourteen songs, and Mark loved to give the fans value for money. That was one of his, he really meant that. He said, and also he didn't put the singles on uh, on the records. Uh, get it on. At, I'm talking about early on Tyrannosaurus Rex days. Sure. You had to if you bought the single, you didn't have to buy the album and you know it, and get the single again on the album unnecessarily. So he was very staunch about that. Yeah, I listened to an interview with Mark where he said he was trying to incorporate things like posters and T-shirts in with an album sale, but it was he was having a hard time getting the record company to uh, foot that extra expenditure. That's true. You know, he had great ideas, and his heart was really all. It was all about the fans, and um, you know, he and fellow artists. He wanted respect from fellow artists, and money wasn't that much of an issue at that point in his life. He he just wanted to get the word out there. He was a very unique artist in the sense that he was primarily a poet. His poetry, I've got to tell you, is to me it's it's very magical. It, 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 he dipped into Tolkien a, a lot. But, oh, interesting. Yeah. But his imagery is. I don't think Bowie, uh, Bowie was, was more pragmatic in a, than Mark. Bolin just went into these fantasy worlds and came up like uh, w- w- with uh, strange metaphors that you had to just go with the flow. You might not have you know, known what he was going on about, but the poetry was so pretty and the rhyming was so pretty that you, you just went with it. Yeah, exactly. Like uh, Cat Black, the Wizard's Hat, like you just mentioned. I mean, that just has a sound to it that it may not mean anything, but it just sounds great. Yeah, 
Yeah, and it is yeah. about a real wizard he wrote about, but then part of it is true and the rest is fantasy. <laughs> sure, sure. It's interesting you mentioned about the their different lyrical styles between uh, Mark Boland and David Bowie. I know David was fond of a, a style of writing where he would write phrases and cut them up and then sort of randomly generate lines. Yeah, that was a little later. You know, he would sit down, a song like Space Oddity, he would just sat, sit down with his acoustic guitar and write it on a piece of paper and uh, have the idea in his head. But he liked uh, William Burroughs, the, the writer William Burroughs, who invented sure. that. He decided to play with that, and he did, I think, di a lot of Diamond Dogs was done with that, maybe Station to Station, so that was a little later on. And he was always experimenting uh, and trying to push boundaries. Mark was kind of stuck in the same seven chord changes, uh, whereas David would, would, you know, right till the end of his days, he would flirt with uh, jazz and have it as far out as possible. He had, he had kind of two jazz albums out. The last one, of course, was Black Star. So right. Mark, Mark just kind of said, ah, I'm not going there, you know. But he yeah. liked, Mark loved big productions. He loved big string sections and lots of backing vocalists. And, and he loved playing atonal guitar solos. I mean, he played some of the weirdest stuff on his guitar. It would be in the key of E, uh, and he would he knew all his blues licks in the key of E, but then he would suddenly slide up to the key of G playing the same blues licks. And then you get you get notes like F natural, which doesn't belong in that key, you know. Yeah. If you, if you listen to his his guitar solos, they are bizarre. They're based on shapes, not necessarily modality, but he, he would invent a new modality by just sliding up three frets and doing the same licks, you know. Maybe wow, that's really that's really creative. You very listen to those solos; it is very creative. And yeah. I didn't, I didn't object. I didn't say you can't do that. I'd go, wow, that's really deep. Nobody does that. That's great. Yeah, well, it's part of who he is as an artist. Sure. So, "Ride a White Swan" comes out. That was the biggest song that you guys had done to that point. And then I'm sure the record company was like, "We need a follow up. We need a follow up." And I, you weren't quite ready to do the next album yet, so you did Hot Love. Tell us about Hot Love. Hot Love was, uh, okay, we had a big hit with Rider White Swan, which was still the duo sound. It was just Mark and Mickey Finn. And right. Mark, in fact, uh, there was no no drums were injured on that album, the, on, that, on that track. <laughs> uh, just the tambourine and hand claps. And Mark played, the rhythm was Mark playing my Fender bass with a capo on the fourth fret. It, Whoa, a capo on the bass? Yeah, because he put the capo on the guitar on the fourth fret. Oh, it's an okay. It's an A-flat that major, sure. you know. And yeah. he was just thumping with a pick, thump, 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 like that. That was the rhythm. And it was infectious. And we got up to number two with that in, in Great Britain. We're a tall hat, got the truth in the old days. We're a tall hat and a tattooed gown. Ride a white swan that the people of a belting Where you head long, baby, can't go wrong Catch a bright star in a place you know your forehead Say a few spells and baby, there you go Take a black cat and sit you down your shoulder And in the morning you'll know all you know then we said, like, uh, we got to go in the studio. We, the, the bass was a, a really strong point. He says, but we need, really need a drummer on the next record. And uh, I, I said, well, I'm, I'm working with this group from South End in uh, England. They're called uh, Legend. And uh, they were R&B kind of like uh, this guy, Mickey Jupp, who's the lead singer, was the funkiest white boy I have ever met in my life. It was, it was a great group. 
but they were kind of going nowhere. I mean, it was very talented. They had very just a local following. But the drummer, Bill Fifield, was terrific. I wanted to use him for session work. He, he had such a good Ringo feel. He sounded yeah. like Ringo. So when Mark, uh, we, we managed to get Steve Curry on bass. He, he watched me. I, I played a gig with T-Rex on bass. Tyrannosaurus Rex and Steve watched me in the wings. He was lined up to be the group's bass player and he came, he came to the hot love session and I got Bill Fifield to play drums for Mark on the session and Mark loved him and he didn't have a drummer yet. But at the end of it, he says, you are my drummer. You're going to be my drummer. He says, I know you come from a group called legend, so I'm going to call you Bill legend. <laughs> oh, wow. How cool is that? <laughs> and, you know, Bill uh, is Bill Legend from then onwards. He never went back to Fifield, you know, his, his original name. So that's how, that's how the band formed with Hot Love. So there we go. We go with Hot Love. We do that song. It's like a, a Hey Jew homage because it's seven minutes long. And yeah. uh, then Mark, you know, by then we're using strings a lot. I wrote the biggest string section so far, and we had strings throughout, and we had... Uh, I think, uh, no. Yeah, Flo and Eddie came in. They were in town, yeah. and they sang on it. They sang earlier on a song called Seagull Woman, and they were in town with uh, Frank Zappa. And so they just made it in time to sing Hot Love, and then they left. So this was a mega production by Tyrannosaurus Rex, T-Rex standards. And that, that's when we knew we had a sound called T-Rex at that moment that, with that song. Well, she's faster than most and she lives on the coast of uh -huh. well, she's faster than most and she lives on the coast uh -huh. I'm a two-pity prince and I give her heart love J.L.E. So that was our follow-up, and that was an enormous hit in the UK. It, so we went to uh, America. I went to see my parents. I hadn't seen them in three years. Mark came to do a, a mini tour, and we met up in New York, and I got a telephone at my mother's house. No, nobody had cell phones then, of course. Sure. With my, my boss saying, Hot Love is six weeks at number one. Do you have a follow-up? I go, no, we don't. He goes, can you record a follow-up in America? I said, yes, we can. <laughs> so we looked up, we phoned up Flo and Eddie, and uh, we went to L.A. I flew to L.A. with Mark and the band, and they lined up a studio for us, and we recorded this song called Get It On. And uh, some, one other song, we did two songs in L.A., and of course, you know, Flo and Eddie singing, Howard Kalin and Mark Fulman, who were the turtles, obviously. Yes. So because of their help, you know, we had this great studio, great engineer. We taught them the songs the day before by Howard's pool. He had this L.A., you know, pool that we didn't know anybody who owned a pool. And in, in New York, you know, and he right. had orange trees and we were picking oranges off his trees and eating them straight off the tree. And I, I have a little uh, eight millimeter video of the, the band, you know, all these pale Englishmen going really crazy in the California sun and uh, goofing around. And <laughs> they worked out the backing vocals. And we only spent one day in the studio the next day and we did uh, get it on. We did all the backing vocals. <laughs>
and then decided to keep recording. So after that was done, we went back to New York, where we met up in the first place, and then we hired a studio called Media Sound, and we did songs like Monolith and Jeepster, uh, I think a, a third song in that studio. And, and, you know, this wasn't the day of Pro Tools. I, I'm, I'm walking around now. I'm the guardian of the multi-track tapes. I've got these 16-track tapes I've got to carry around with me all the time, back to London and all that. So it was like a little hard, but we we were recording by the seat of our pants. When we had a few hours, we'd go into a studio and record. And this continued when we all went back to England and Mark was still touring and doing big shows because now he was a big star. And we booked Trident Studios and AdVision Studios. So in all, the, the, the album was made in three cities and four different studios. And, wow. And to put it together and again, to knit, knit it together was not easy. No. I, and how did you get, because it sounds so cohesive. It sounds like an album. Did you have to be more conscious during the mixing process to get a cohesive sound since you recorded in so many different places? Yes. It, it was a time now where we could afford the studio time. It, it was impossible to do like, you know, four tracks a day mixing. It was 16 track tape. And we crammed a lot of information, like uh, on uh, a backing vocal track, you might have a tambourine coming in later. Things right. like that make it a little, you know, difficult. It, it, was, it wasn't the era of 24-track yet or putting two, two machines together. So th- those mixes are kind of hard. So we took about 10 days to mix Electric Warrior. And we, Mark and I were well aware of the problem of the different sound of all the studios. But we started the T-Rex, typical T-Rex thing of putting slapback on the vocal and slapback on the drums, specifically the toms and the snare. And you could do that to wherever the drums were recorded, you could make a keynote sound, you know, a specialized sound. So the drums were sounding uniform. And also, like we used to record drums on two or three tracks in those days, we couldn't afford the luxury of one microphone per track yet. So sometimes sure. it was a big decision. Do you put the snare in with the tom-toms or do you put the kick drum in with the tom-toms? And I, had, I was trying both out. So some tracks you could hear the kick drum loud because it was on its own track. And sometimes you couldn't hear the kick drum so loud. I noticed that in my recent listening. Absolutely. The kick drum would stick out some on some songs. Yeah. I, I was worried. I didn't know what would be the be- better way to do it. Of course, now I would slam a sample over the kick drum and uh, get a better sound. But we didn't have anything like that. No track replacement. But, you know, our key signatures, sounds like the slapback on the voice, the guitar solos, that, and also this thing called ADT, automatic double tracking. We, that was already on, we knew how to do that. And I, and I learned, Glenn Johns taught me how to do it. You need a couple of tape recorders besides this, the uh, multi-track tape recorder. One tape recorder is stationary, while the other rec- tape recorder is uh, on a very speed. And this way you get your swooshy phasing sound, you know, which you, got, you heard on Strawberry Fields Forever and a lot of the Beatles stuff. All, sure. But if you fix it at a certain position, you get a slapback that's something like only 30 milliseconds, very, very tight. And that was kind of the John Lennon vocal sound and I Am the Walrus, that thing called ADT. So we, used, we incorporated those three elements all through Electric Warrior, and that's how it kind of sounded uniform. That's amazing. Okay, so yeah, I wanted to ask about the recording style on this record. And so it's not really the recording style as much as it is your mixing style. That's very interesting. When you recorded it, did you do any vocal doubling? Did he double track his vocal 
himself or was that all just ADT? Sometimes he did and sometimes he didn't. Okay. Uh, but, and, and it depended on the song. He, like, for instance, I think the, the uh, opening song, Mambo Son, he's double-tracked. He's, he double-tracked himself. Beneath the beatbox moon, I want to croon with you. Beneath the Mambo Son, I got to be the one with you, with, with you. When he did double track, it was so accurate. He never missed a syllable. And it, it, it's how he wrote the songs in his head. There was only one way to sing a, a lead vocal. So his double tracks sound like ADT on, on occasion. I have to like ask myself, was that an ADT or was it a real double track? Right. Yeah, I noticed that too. His phrasing, if you know, and, and I was thinking about that song in particular, the lead track on the album, Mambo Sun. It, it's just, it is spot on. It's a mirror image. Yeah. That was the other song that we recorded in L.A., actually. That's got Flo and Eddie on it. Yeah. Oh, okay. So, um, but, you know, it, it, it doesn't sound like Get It On. <laughs> it's just got a real sound unto itself. Oh, the other thing was strings. Now, Mark was addicted to strings by that time. We used them a lot on... on um, uh, the, Tyrannos, the later Tyrannosaurus Rex albums, just a kind of a string quartet. It's all we could afford. But, you know, Hot Love had about 20 string players on it. You know, we went to town. We had the budget. We could do it. Wow. And, um, but they, they kind of like, if you listen to Jeepster, there are overdubbed cellos and a bassoon on that. It's hard to hear the bassoon, but you'll hear the cellos. Then um, when we did Get It On... I, I had arranged songs for, I had arranged strings for uh, other tracks on the album, but Get It On was kind of a rocker, you know, like thought, ah, this doesn't need strings. Then I got a funny feeling when we were putting down the strings uh, that if Get It On is going to be a single, then we should have strings on it. And I told Mark, I said, Mark, you know, we didn't plan any strings on this, but all our hits, and this was the thing, this is how I got them. I said, all our hits have strings on them which was two hits, basically. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so he, he really, he turned pale and he says, what can we do? And I said, all we can do is like, I know what it is. I said, the chorus is you play a G chord, you know, get it on, that's a G chord. Yeah, right. Bang a gong, that's an A minor chord. A lot of guitarists think it's an A chord. It's an A minor chord. And then the, the third chord is an E major chord. I said, I'll just write G a. In fact, I didn't even write it out. I told everyone in the string section, when I, the first note you're going to play is G natural, the second note is A, and the last note is going to be E. And when I point to you, you'll do it. So I'm used to conducting, and that's how we did it. I just told them what notes they played, and I pointed them, and get it on. They played the note G, bang a gong. They played the note A, get it on, and they played the note E. And sometimes they had to do it five times. It's very irregular how many times Mark uh, repeats that. He does it like three times, four times, two times. And the one time he does it five times in the song, the full-length version yeah. of it. But anyway, it worked out fine. And we got our strings on the Get It On, and it was a massive hit. So I'm so glad we did that. I, 
maybe it would have been a hit without the strings, but it definitely was the icing on the cake that, that pushed it over the edge. Yeah, now, such a, I mean, I think if everybody thinks of one song from T-Rex, it's definitely Bang Gong. Yeah. Get it on. Most Americans uh, feel that way. <laughs> most Americans, certainly, yeah. yes. Let's talk about Cosmic Dancer just for a minute. There's some great backwards guitar on there. And, you know, we've talked about tape versus Pro Tools. It's easy to flip something around and reverse in Pro Tools these days. But tell us how you got the backwards guitar back then. Uh, there was only way to get backwards guitar or backwards vocals or backwards anything like percussion sounds particularly good backwards too. But we, we heard the Beatles records and we knew that they did it. And if anyone who owned a tape recorder in those days knew that if you flipped the tape over and played it, it would have that sucking in sound. Yeah. You know, like a vocal, anything would have the things like that, you know. And right. uh, so it was tricky. So say if Mark was going to play a solo on track 14 and you flipped it around on the tape, you, if you recorded on track 14, you'd be in trouble. You'd probably be wiping the snare drum. So you had to work at that track 14 when you flipped the tape is actually would be track three. And right. then, then you double check that that's the tape, that that's the track you're going to record the guitar on. You because uh, I never made that accident, but other people have. And so I, lear I learned from what other people told me, you know, be careful. So I, had a, I always had a list with me, like one down through 16, and on the other side next to it, 16 down to one. So I knew, I knew what I was doing. I knew that 14 yeah. would be track three, et cetera. And, uh, so there, but then the thing is you get to that point, then you have to make a, a, a chalk mark you know, that grease grease paint, that grease chalk mark on the track where the guitar would come in and you would sit in the studio and listen to the song backwards and watch that line come up and that would be that would give Mark his cue to start playing. But at the same time you were learning the song backwards. You were learning how to listen to it backwards. You know, you'd right. you'd know where you were. I mean, the chords still sounded the same, but they were in the different place, you know. Yeah, sure. The get it on reversed. chords, for instance, would be the E would start first, and the A would come second, and the G would be the third chord. So if you flip it around, so once you go through that, it's a technical and very imaginative. You have to use your imaginations. And Mark used to do maybe two solos side by side uh, on different tracks, and we just flip them over and see what we'd get. We we you wouldn't know until you flip the tape back over again. Yeah, and nine times out of ten. It was right. Absolutely beautiful. We did our homework properly and it worked out just great. And we did that over and over again. And many T-Rex records. Did you do the mixes on the for the bonus material on the 2013 remaster of Electric Warrior? Yes, I did. I did. There is an acoustic solo version of Planet Queen on there, and it doesn't have any of the band accompaniment, and it is every bit as cool, if not cooler, than the album track. It really shows the pure essence of Mark. Yeah. 
Mark was amazing. Just give him an acoustic guitar, and he used it like an orchestra. He was really, really great on the acoustic. And he'd not only just strum, he would play, you know, he would quickly play a quick lick and then go back to strumming. He would do his interjections as a, as a quick lick here and there. Uh, he was just amazing. It was just that that's his, you know, years of playing in those folk clubs when John Peel discovered him. He, he had years and years of doing that. Well, it's all right. Love is what you want. Flying swords are taking away. Give me your daughter. Well, it's all right. Love is what you want. Mark had some very interesting rhythmic riffs as well as, you know, not using notes, but rhythm as much. Uh, where was it? Where would he get his rhythmic influences? Because I think that's something on this record that really stands out as unique. Well, he used to listen to Ricky Nelson, and uh, I forget Ricky Nelson's guitarist. But was it James Burton? James Burton, yeah. That's right, James Burton. And those records had an acoustic strumming bass to them. Really very, very steady acoustic guitars. You know, early 60s, drums weren't loud in the mix. Uh, right. The, the bass was, was often a, a big bass, you know, a wooden bass. And uh, so I think Mark heard that on, on early kind of rockabilly records. He was very much into Gene Vinson, Elvis. You know, Elvis had a very strong acoustic guitar uh, on, on his, uh, that first Elvis album. And uh -huh. that, that he conversely, he learned lead playing as well, but it, he had a real strong foundation in rhythm guitar playing. I think, I think that's where he got it from early rockabilly, Elvis, Gene Vincent. John Peel, who we've mentioned a couple of times, uh, didn't really like Get It On and said as much after playing it the first time on the BBC. How did that affect the relationship between he and Mark? Oh, they, they had a falling out over that. Uh, John actually got him on the phone and called him a Judas. Really? Yes. He said, you betrayed your fans, you betrayed me, and what you stand for. You stand for poetry and beauty, and now you're just making rock and roll records. What's all that about? You know, he was really adamant that Mark had lost his mind almost, you know, doing this. Or he sell, sell out, really. He said, you sold out, you're a Judas. Whoa. Uh, yeah, that was pretty bad. They did make up afterwards. Took a while. Um, because, you know, John, in all fairness, John must have had him on the radio show about 10 times playing live. And he, he was responsible for building up a fan base, I would say, of about 15,000 people. When we put out that first Tyrannosaurus Rex album, it sold 15,000 overnight and got up to about 22,000 in a matter of uh, a month or two. Uh -huh. So John, now, that's why John felt betrayed. <laughs> wow, that's interesting. So he just, uh, it, it was almost like when Dylan went electric. It, he kind of, it seems like he just didn't like the new direction, huh? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it didn't affect the rest of the BBC because now they had a new pop star, and uh, other DJs were picking up on, on Mark. And, uh, you know, we got the airplay for Get It On, especially. Yeah. So from underground to overground, like you said. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in that same interview that's on the 2013 reissue with the bonus tracks, Mark says in that interview that he changes songwriting style to appeal to the U.S. market. Do you think that Electric Warrior was made with that approach in mind? 
Well, you know, we, we recorded in a, a lot of different countries all, all over the world, including Japan. And uh, Mark would pick up the local, he would soak up the local atmosphere. So when he was in America, he was, you know, listening to car radios, uh, if there'd be a limousine or somebody would just drive him somewhere. And he was really getting into American rock and roll or American pop. And of course, that's the territory, that's the main territory you want to conquer as if you're a British rock artist. You want to do just two territories you want. You want the United States and oddly enough, Japan, because those, those mm. people were really buying records. Those two countries were pop music aficionados. So I don't know, he says he was, but you know, his stuff was kind of Chuck Berry based, like Telegram Sam, uh, mm-hmm. e- even on uh, Get It On, he, he does a little lick of Little Queenie at the end, and, and he, so he pays homage to Chuck Berry in a couple of his songs. So the rock and roll he was writing was earlier, whereas like a lot of people at his age in the 70s were being kind of second-rate Beatles. They were, they were steal, you know, the Beatles were coming up with Strawberry Fields Forever, and everyone was going psychedelic and trying right. to like get that market. Mark, what people fail to realize, Mark jumped a generation earlier. He was channeling Chuck Berry, James Burton, uh, you know, Ricky Nelson, Buddy Holly. Yeah. That was who he was taking his Americana from, those people. Interesting. Yeah. Now, he said that Ripoff was kind of written for America, too. And we know that he was very cognizant of wanting to make sure that he gave his fans value. Do you know in what sense Ripoff, like, what p- was he talking about? What kind of a ripoff? Or was it just like, watch out for wolves in general? I'm, I was just interested about that song. I don't know. I, I, I only, it's only a theory. First of all, when we got really good at the T-Rex sound we were in the mixing room, he turned to me once because it, it got very easy at, at one point, maybe around the Electric Warrior. Like we, we really, it was easy to do once, like I told you what our formulas were before. And he turned to me and he said, he with a big smile on his face, he said, cheap, isn't it? Because <laughs> <laughs> it was so, for us, it was like falling off a log. It, was so, it really was simple. But we, we made that sound together. For us, it was simple. Um, and I think ripoff could be he's satirizing himself. Interesting. He's the ripoff. Right. And uh, right. Because you know, Palomino Toad, da 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 da, it's a, he's like imitating Dylan, and and he's just saying it's so easy to do a song like this. It's just so easy to write a song like this. You know, it's a ripoff. You know, just ripping off people. That's my theory. I don't right. know. I don't know anything more specific about what he was actually saying on that. But it it does stick out as a standout track as being unlike all the rest. This album was recently rated, you know, uh, Rolling Stone updates their top 500 albums of all time occasionally, and this it's currently 188 on there, and it, everybody says it's, you know, maybe the first glam rock album. I think you're probably more qualified to speak to that than just about anybody else since you worked with the two progenitors of glam rock, David Bowie and Mark Boland. Uh, how do you feel that this record sits kind of historically? 
Well, it is absolutely the first glam rock album that was recorded. And Mark was now at that point, because glam is really uh, a fashion statement as well. I mean, it's the clothes. It's it's men starting to wear makeup, eye makeup, mm-hmm. and even, even lipstick and... Uh, you know, which isn't anything new. It's, it's like being in opera. And in the old days of, in England, men wore, they powdered themselves and wore wigs and all that. So it's, it's nothing yeah. new, but it was revived, you know. this. So Bowie's music and Boland's music are very different things. And they're both called glam rock, that, you know, the Ziggy Stardust and the Electric Warrior record. And um, it, it, it's not so much that, but if you're going to say who wrote the, who made the first glam rock albums, it's definitely Mark Bolin because he was now wearing makeup and wearing chartreuse jackets and uh, high heels, you know, women's yeah. shoes and women's clothing in general, you know. So it's got to be the first glam rock album. <laughs> Stylistically, it's a rock and roll album. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. No doubt about it. I think that everybody that I know that's a musician, you bring up this album and everybody's like, oh, yeah, it's fantastic. You know, I think it's been so influential on so many musicians since it's, you know, for 50 years now, of course. And it's yeah. kind of crazy to think it's been out that long. Oh, I mean, oh, through the years, I, you two did a couple of T-Rex style tracks, Foo Fighters. And, you know, he's definitely influencing everyone till this day. Because it's just when you might write a basic chord rock and roll song and you start doing the choppy guitars and all that, you're in T-Rex land, <laughs> whether you know it or not. You've, you know, everyone's heard this record. Everyone's been inspired by it. Yeah, and I think that Bang A Gong is, Get It On, is that that riff. Dum, bum, 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 that's everything that he learned about that rhythmic figure distilled yeah. into one track. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you could trace that. That's got a history in like Memphis, this, that, that chop, that beat, you know, but the way he did it, you know, and the way he's put it in his context was like totally original. And, and not listen to the words. Those words do not make sense. I mean, they do make sense. <laughs> diamond star halo. I mean, no, no R&B singer ever put a diamond star halo in, in the, those records. It was all about blues, you know, about living a hard life. Drinking, you know, uh, your girl left you and stuff like that. Get It On is just beautiful. Lyrically, it's just a poem. If you just read it on its own, it would stand up. But it's got Chuck Berry licks in it and, you know, the beat. It's got the rock and roll beat. Yeah, yeah. Well, one of my favorite lines on the album is in Jeepster. It's just like a car. You're pleasing to behold. I'll call you Jaguar if I may be so bold. I just love the way that his poetry flows. And it just it just sneaks by you sometimes because it feels so natural. There you go. That was That's a perfect example of one thing he was obsessed with, which was cars. And he'd equate the beauty of a car with the beauty of a woman. And that's how you get that lyric, lyric in uh, Jeepster. He loved cars so much that uh, he bought them a couple. He never, he could never drive. You know, his wife uh, June Bolin drove June Child or June Bolin. She was the driver. He just yeah. liked sitting in a Bentley. He loved sitting in a Rolls Royce. He, <laughs> he loved it. You know, and they they had names, and he spoke to them, and they had characters, and you know, the, the, uh, there's a lot of uh, there are a lot of references to cars and all a lot of his songs. Yeah. Well, Tony, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about this amazing album, Electric Warrior. Your insight is invaluable. 
And congratulations on 50 years of an amazing record. Uh, thank you so much. It's, it's the gift that keeps on giving. I've got to tell you that. It, I love that album. It's just so... Uh, it, I never tire of listening to it. I mean, I don't listen to it every day. But uh, every now and then I'll just put it on my, my headphones and I'll walk in the streets and listen to it with a big smile on my face because it's a very, very happy memory. Tony, thank you. I appreciate it. Oh, you're so welcome. This was really fun. Thank you so much. Just like a call, you're pleasing to behold. I call you Jaguar, I may be so bold, you're my babe. Yes, you're my love. Oh, girl, I'm just a jeepster for your Thanks very much to Tony for this great conversation. There's an expanded version of Electric Warrior available on all streaming outlets that has extra cuts and alternate versions of the songs, as well as an interview with Mark Bolin. Worth your time. Check it out. Thanks very much. Take care. And we'll see you next time right here on the Rhino Podcast. Thanks very much for tuning in. Don't forget to listen and subscribe on iTunes so you don't miss the next Rhino Podcast producer for rhino entertainment john hughes produced for rhino entertainment by rich mayhem promotions all rights reserved